father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? Hello, and welcome to What's Lightsabers Precious, the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopedia podcast, where we waste time on fictional wikis. My name is Ryan. And my name is Joanna. Well, Ryan, not much news in terms of Lord of the Rings this week. What about Star Wars? Not much news here either. Again, all the news cycle right now is like, episode nine, when's the trailer gonna drop? Who's in it? Who's Ray's parents? Are they gonna smooch? And it's all stupid. Um, one thing that did come out this week that ties into last week's episode, I believe I mentioned J.W. Rinsler last time we were talking about the history of Star Wars. He's a guy who did like the making of Star Wars. He spends a lot of time with George Lucas, but he was on a podcast for StarWarsNewsNet.com. And he mentioned how George feels about Mara Jade. Oh, last week's subject. Yeah, so if you had to guess, how do you think George Lucas feels about Mara Jade? I mean, he doesn't seem like somebody who is, like, super, super protective of, like, what's canon and what's not, to be honest. Because he just, like, let all this extended universe stuff proliferate. Like, he didn't Mm -hmm. really seem to care. I'm going to say maybe he doesn't like her. You are correct. J.W. Rinsler said he couldn't stand Mara. Really? That's really strong. So apparently, first of all, they thought that getting a model, Shannon McRandall, to play her, that was not Star Wars to him. Also, the whole- What? Wait. It wasn't Star Wars enough. She thought she was too pretty. Oh, you can't be too pretty? Also, he didn't like the idea of Luke getting married because that's not what a Jedi does. And so he made that up later, though. He made that he told, and Anakin also got married. George, yeah. Did you yeah. forget? And look how that turned out, right? Well, yeah, turned out great. But so J.W. Rinsler found out that there was a book written about Mara Jade's death. He got to tell George personally, and he said George didn't say anything, but he could tell he was very satisfied with that conclusion. Well, he was pleased that she died. Yes. <laughs> Jesus, George, you really hate her that much. Yep, but now he has It no sounds con- like so he hated her because she was too pretty and he didn't think Luke should be tied down to the old ball and chain. And he was well, I'm glad that he rejoiced in the death of a female character. Pretty cool, George. So that's the only news I have. It's not really news, but that's cool it's, news. It's that's funny. Cool. I thought that's it was cool. and it was related to Mara Jade. So all right, cool. Well, today I have a little bit of a long one, so why don't we get into it? Okay. Is it going to be exciting though? Is it going to be long and fun, or is it going to be long and boring like school? I mean, my my aim with these is never to make it long and boring. Ugh, I don't want to go to school. I don't need no education. Don't give me this boring lecture teach i mean something fun uh, the person for whom it was boring ideally should should be me because i'm the one that slogged through like 200 pages of Mm -hmm. christopher tolkien meticulously tracking versions of a poem his dad wrote in like minute excruciating detail and we're not getting paid to do this either no we're not getting paid for the hours and hours i spent what I did was I went through and I tried to isolate the bits that were interesting, and hopefully people agree that these are the interesting bits, but we will see. Okay. So today is going to be the first part of a two-part series on The Treason of Isengard, the follow-up to Christopher Tolkien's Return of the Shadow, which right. we discussed several months ago. Yes. And along the way, I'm going to remind you of some of the stuff we talked about when we covered Return of the Shadow, because it's kind of a long time ago. It was, yeah. It was back when we were talking about the history of Lord of the Rings as well as the history of Star Wars in the same time. But you ran out of Star Wars history, so, and I'm still going with Lord of the Rings history, because Christopher Tolkien is a maniac. This book is 400 pages long. That's in addition to the 400 pages he already wrote in Return of the Shadow. Sorry. Oh, and this isn't even the end. This only takes us up to the Hall of Theoden. Oh my god. Yeah, he's a maniac. He's a 93-year-old maniac. So, we're gonna do the Treason of Isengard in two parts instead of the three we used for Return of the Shadow, because overall, the changes Tolkien was making to his manuscript at this change weren't nearly as dramatic. Um, There was all kinds of stuff in Return of the Shadow, like the big reveal that Trotter has wooden feet, for example, or the fact that Farmer Maggot straight up threatened to murder Bilbo and Frodo that kind of make you go like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. But there's not as much of that in The Treason of Isengard. Actually, a lot of this book is Christopher Tolkien, as I said, tracking super minute changes that are of maybe academic interest at most. 
That said, there's still some interesting and strange stuff in here, so let's get into it. Now. Okay, only the interesting and fun stuff, please. Well, what's interesting and fun to me might not be interesting and fun to everybody. Snooze fest. Because, like, I voluntarily have read The Silmarillion more than once, so that's where I'm coming from. What a freaking nerd. Now, last time, you'll remember that Tolkien got all the way up to the discovery of Balin's tomb at Moria, at which point he paused for a while. Now, when he started writing again, I want you to guess what he did. He started over. Of course! He started way back at the beginning! No. More like editing, not so much rewriting, but he did do a fair bit of rewriting, too. Um, the good okay, news... Now, what, what, what start over are we on now? What, which, uh... God, um... You went through, like, a lot like, five? Okay, I was gonna say, it was, like, four or five, right? Possibly, like, five, yeah. Oh, my God. The good news here, though, is on this pass-through, he got really close to the final structure of Lord of the Rings, so there's not a ton to talk about in terms of those early parts. Okay. Today, we're gonna talk about his revised version all the way up through the end of The Minds of Moria. Okay. And then next week, we'll discuss Lorien all the way up to meeting King Theoden and Edoras. So this is going to move at a faster clip than Return of the Shadow did. All right. With Return of the Shadow, we discussed how for a long time, Tolkien didn't really seem to know what his book was going to be about. In fact, for a while, he was kind of proceeding under the impression that this was going to be a relatively light, hobbit-centric romp through Middle-earth, rather than the most famous and most dense fantasy epic of all time. But by the time period discussed in The Treason of Isengard, he'd hit upon the idea of the ring as a tool of the Dark Lord, its seductive power, and the fact that it needed to be destroyed inside a volcano. So he pretty much had most of the kings ironed out right yeah but he did some additional ironing at the beginning of this time period for example he finally decided that trotter was going to be a man instead of a hobbit okay with wooden feet still with wooden feet no 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 no. instead of a hobbit with wooden feet oh i thought you said with wooden feet no he literally wrote cut out shoes oh all right so i don't know if that means like cut out the wooden shoes or just like aragorn doesn't wear shoes at this point like an earth child cut out shoes yeah he he is going to that adventure barefoot i know the hobbits did it but man i was thinking they must have stepped in so much crap it's kind of feel so bad it's it's so much poop well they had to go through the marshes can you imagine like the poopy soupy like Ucky feeling Ugh. under the Midgewater marshes. Ugh. Ugh. They probably stepped on a dead body or two in Moria. They, they probably, probably stepped on like dozens. Yeah. Yeah. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. Anyway, so he cut out shoes, which was probably the right move, but also sad because the reveal that Trotter actually had wooden feet was pretty breathtaking. That is a a shame. These aren't my shoes, they're my feet! Trotter. Anywho, with that, a lot of the basic details of Aragorn's story fell into place. So... Trotter, he was still called Trotter as his nickname, not Strider. Mm -hmm. He was a descendant of the ancient men of the north. Well, you gotta trot before you can stride. You gotta trot before you can stride, (laughs) exactly. Get your training trots on. Yeah. He was one of Elrond's household. Mm -hmm. He was a hunter and a wanderer, and that's all basically consistent. Other details of his backstory were kind of off. For example, at first Tolkien wrote that he was a descendant of Turin Turimbar. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we know for very good reason that Turin had no descendants, right? Like, right. You remember that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, any descendants he would have had would have been born with, like, extra thumbs and webbed feet and very large heads. Yeah, yeah. Tolkien also worked out how Aragorn came together with Gandalf to figure out how to guide the hobbits safely from Bree to Rivendell. Although he didn't quite know why Gandalf didn't show up on time in Bree. Like, at one point he wrote, What delayed Gandalf? Black riders or other hunters? Treebeard. You'll remember at this point, Treebeard was like an evil tree. Oh, okay. Um, Tolkien then follows this up with, Aragorn did not miss Gandalf and arranged Trist on Weathertop. Trist, huh? Trist. That's a weird choice of words there, Tolkien. (laughs) Tolkien's use of the word Trist here shows that he's continuing his personal tradition, which began with his repeated use of the word queer against the advisement of literally everyone else of stubbornly using old definitions of words that have come to have extremely different connotations. Is this the age of teleporno as well? <laughs> I think that was earlier, but yeah. Tolkien is just... I can never decide if he doesn't understand, like doesn't know that these things have other meanings, or if he's just stubbornly like, well, if you look in the dictionary, this is what it means. And Actually. It means this. Actually, so I'm going to use it. If he's just being like bullheaded about it. Hmm. Um, the way he was using the word tryst here was almost certainly in the sense of an appointed place of hunting, which is a definition from late Middle English, J.R.R. I've never heard the uh, used in that way. I always thought no. it was like, a, like a, an affair, like a, a romantic entanglement. Yeah, it, it sounds like he and Gandalf were going to get down to it. Yeah, on Weathertop. <laughs> oh. It's isolated. 
Wait JFC Tolkien, late Middle English. My God. Anywho, JFC Tolkien is that another Tolkien I don't know about? <laughs> yeah, Jesus effing Christ Tolkien. Okay, okay. JFC is long lost okay. brother. And also SMH Tolkien was their oh, other lost okay. brother. Anywho, at this point, Tolkien also more or less finalized the names of the four hobbits involved in the quest to destroy the ring. So Frodo Baggins, Samwise Gamgee, Mary Duck Brandybuck, and Peregrine Boffin. Close enough, right? Boffin. Close enough, close enough. Who the hell's a Boffin? He also made the explicit decision that only Sam would be with Frodo to the very end, which is the right choice because Sam is lovely. Tolkien also got super extra at this point and sketched out the movements of each individual Nazgul, giving oh them each God. a designated he, letter, A through I. He had a Nazgul map? He did. Oh so my goodness. Why he did this, I don't know, because as far as the reader knows or cares, there's... The Witch King of Angmar, and then there's the other eight Nazgul who aren't the Witch King of Angmar. Well, it probably helped keep his story consistent. Like, keep, make sure the Nazgul are like... Well, he could just say, like, three are here and two are here. I don't know. I maybe mean, it doesn't matter. I know. But, like, as a writer, maybe it helped him. Like, I know, like, when you do draw, like, a, a comic series or something, it's good to have, like, a map of the character's house or something so you don't mess it up. Sure, but in this case, every room in the character's house is probably not interchangeable, right? All the Nazgul except the Witch King of Angmar are interchangeable. That's true. That's true. You don't have to give each one a designated letter, but... Okay. Okay, J.R.R. Okay, that's fine. If it helps you. We start once again with Bilbo's departure from Hobbiton. Mm -hmm. He and Gandalf have a discussion about the ring that's largely the same as in the final version of the novel, except Bilbo doesn't get quite as pissed off when Gandalf tells him to leave the ring behind. And in addition to Bilbo's anger, his dwarven manservant Lofar has also been written out. Lofar, no! so sad, because I don't know why, but weird manservants are like one of my favorite types of characters. First they came for Trotter and I said nothing. And then they came for Lofar. And then when they came for me, there was no one left to speak up. No dwarf manservant No left. dwarf manservant or wooden shoes left to speak up. <laughs> Gandalf then has to explain to Frodo all about the ring and his uncle's departure. And at this point, Tolkien evidently wondered to himself why Bilbo was more or less fine after leaving the ring behind, while Gollum was like this miserable shell of a creature. So he says, quote, Of course, if anyone possessed the ring for many years, it would probably take a long while for the effects to wear off. How long is not really known. Bilbo might live for ages, but not wearily, I think. He would, I now believe, just stop as he was when he parted with the ring, and would be happy if he parted with it of his own accord and with good intent. Okay. So what he's saying here is, like, you won't end up like Gollum as long as you and the ring have an amicable divorce. <laughs> as long as it's a mutual agreement <laughs> yeah. that we're not right for each other. You just, yeah. So, ring, you get the kids on the weekends. <laughs> right, right. But if you're like Gollum and you're figuratively drunk dialing the ring at 3 a.m. all the time, like, baby, come back. You know we're meant to be together. You're the only one who can save me. Real messy. Real messy. Yeah, you'll just be an a-hole forever at that point. Yeah. Speaking of Gollum, Tolkien still seems to struggle with Gollum's motivations in his meeting with Bilbo and Riddle in the dark. So you remember that in the first edition of The Hobbit, Gollum intended to willingly give the ring to Bilbo as a prize for winning the Riddle contest. Right. But why the hell would he do that if the ring was really all that powerful, right? Well, he's bluffing. He's not actually going to give it to him. He knows he's going to win that contest and eat Bilbo. Well, basically how Tolkien tried to fix this issue was by making Gollum sort of ambivalent, right? So, like, one part of him desperately wants to keep the ring, while the other part desperately wanted to get rid of it. So Frodo asks Gandalf the obvious question. If Gollum desperately wanted to get rid of it, why didn't he just give it to a goblin or something? Why does he wait till Bilbo gets there? And Gandalf explains that that wouldn't be as funny. Gandalf explains him? Yes. Gandalf- He says, it wouldn't be as amusing for Gollum. To see a goblin with the ring? Yeah, because goblins are already gross and wretched. Mm. He wanted Bilbo to come become gross and wretched he like him. Be- it, that would be funny. Well, he wouldn't be alone then. He's ma- he's- maybe he was trying to make himself a best friend. He's making a best forever friend. Oh my god, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, this obviously like doesn't quite hold water. Also, Tolkien struggled to explain why Gollum described the ring as his birthday present in The Hobbit when clearly it was no such thing. Like, because he just, it's a, it's this is a lie that he's bought into when he pushed Deagle out of a boat. Well, okay, so you're on the right track, yeah. So, given how powerful the ring is, there's obviously no way someone found it, wrapped it up, and gave it to Gollum in the party room at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so Tolkien- Oh, I wanted the G.I. Joe, what the heck? <laughs> I want to stretch Armstrong, what's this stupid ring? Dumb. Tolkien's solution to this issue actually stuck a little better. So, Gollum lied, but only partially because the day he took the ring and murdered his best friend Deagle- was indeed his birthday. So saying it was a birthday present allows him to remain in denial about killing his friend. 
clever. So that's a pretty good and psychologically interesting approach. Definitely. As far as Gollum willingly giving the ring to Bilbo, though, Tolkien eventually just had to go back and rewrite that part of The Hobbit. He just, like, couldn't make it work otherwise. So, again, The Hobbit's not out yet? Is that... No, it was out. So he... He just changed it for the next edition. Oh, wow. There were parts he changed, and Riddles in the Dark is the big part he changed. So if In light of how powerful the ring was supposed to be. With, like, a first edition Hobbit, or even a second edition Hobbit, without that change, Riddles in the Dark, would that be worth a lot of money nowadays? I wonder. I mean, I think a first edition of The Hobbit would be worth a lot of money, regardless of how much or how little had been changed. But you can read the original version, and it's, like, amazing how flippant Gollum is about the ring. Oh, really? He's like, oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, like, some special edition stuff. It is. It is. It's kind of interesting. I actually have a version that has that in the um, annotations. Oh, so fun. you can read it if you ever want to. Definitely. When I read some of Tolkien's notes earlier, you heard that Tolkien still wasn't sure why Gandalf didn't meet the hobbits in Bray. And this had been an ongoing issue for him because at this stage, Saruman hadn't been invented yet. However, around this time, Tolkien did seem to hit on the idea of it being something to do with a tower because he kept having Frodo have this like vivid dream. Sometimes at Quick Hall, sometimes at the Prancing Pony, sometimes at both, about a tall white tower. But at first, it seems like it was supposed to be one of the ancient elf towers to the far west of the Shire. You remember those? Mm-hmm. And, and still no Saruman involved. He was just dreaming about towers. Huh. Just uh, prophetic dreams. Just huh? prophetic dreams, but prophetic of what? Tolkien did not yet know, apparently. Okay. Um, moving on to the Prancing Pony, here we get our first taste of Trotter as a man, rather than a hobbit with wooden feet. So he is described as, quote, brown faced and, quote, queer looking, because queer is one of Tolkien's favorite words, and he will die before he stops using it. He will literally die, and he literally did die before he stopped using He's it. He's a queer looking man looking for a tryst with a wizard. <laughs> it's all starting to come oh together, my God, right? Tolkien. Yeah, that is, um... He's looking for an old man to have a tryst with. That is, that is, that is... And he's a weather top. Some awfully, <laughs> awfully interesting implications for a man who didn't know what homosexuality was till he was 20. Yikes. Um, so, looking at Trotter, Frodo thinks, quote, What if he led them into the wild, to some dark place far from help? Everything he had said was curiously double-edged. He had a dark look. And yet there was something in his face that was strangely attractive. Now, you might remember that in Return of the Shadow, there was this plot thread about Frodo's friend Odo getting kidnapped by a Nazgul. Yes. And Gandalf having to rescue him and it, like, didn't really come to anything. Well, in this draft, it still doesn't. So <laughs> Tolkien describes Odo, who has been renamed Hamilcar at this point. Hamilcar. Yes. Getting kidnapped from Crick Hall. He also mentions that when the hobbits get to Weathertop, they see hobbit footprints scattered among the Nazgul ones. But try as he might, Tolkien couldn't really make this plot line have any point whatsoever, so he just dropped it at this point. Well, that's probably for the best. That's probably for the best. Because, yeah, if you remember, like, initially, Odo shows up again at Rivendell and Gandalf has rescued him, and Frodo's like, oh, wow, like, what happened when he was captured or whatever? And it just says, like, Gandalf gave him a strange look and said no more. So, like, I don't think even Tolkien knows what he was uh, implying with that. At this point, Tolkien had made it all the way back to the Council of Elrond. And here's where a lot of changes come in. First off, Tolkien finally came up with the idea of Saruman, whom he initially called Sarumond, and who gets called Saman in one of the early typed versions because the typist he used couldn't read his handwriting. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I thought he'd be a really good, have good penmanship. No, it's atrocious. He can when he wants to, but in this book, Christopher Tolkien repeatedly whinges about how hard it is to read. Really? Yes. So Gandalf goes to Saramund for advice, only to find that Saramund has fallen and made a allegiance to Sauron. At that point, Saramund either traps Gandalf on a mountain or gives him to Treebeard, who is still an evil tree. Ah, um, tree you'll notice the tower is not involved at this I, point. I didn't hear any mention of a tower. Yeah, so Tolkien appears to have temporarily abandoned that idea, but as he works his way through the Council of Elrond, and there's a lot to work through with the freaking Council of Elrond, he eventually hits upon the idea of combining the tower thing and the Saruman thing and invents Saruman's Tower of Orthanc. All right. So that's sorted. All right, great. That's pretty clean. A good good solution there. Yes. Um, in terms of other characters at the Council of Elrond, Boromir is still from the land of Ond rather than Gondor. Uh, Elrond describes himself as Gilgalad's former minstrel, which is news to me because Elrond does not strike me as a musical dude. This is like, hmm, okay. It doesn't strike me as a bard. This yeah, that, that's weird, you. man. I know, really weird. Uh, Legolas is called Galdor, and Tolkien spent a lot of time debating who should eventually join the Fellowship of the Ring. So, at first he wanted it to be seven people. Frodo, Sam, Aragorn, Boromir, Gandalf, Galdor, aka Legolas, and Gimli. And Merry and Pippin were just supposed to F off back home. At one point, he thought the Fellowship should be nine people, but Merry would go and Pippin wouldn't. So, instead of Pippin, it was going to be Arrestor? Um, do you remember story. him from that Mpreg story we read in the Christmas episode? Oh, yeah. 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 So apparently Tolkien's original idea 
this is so weird, was that Pippin hated Arrestor's guts and refused to join the fellowship if Arrestor was going to be in it. <laughs> so, which is hilarious. Why would he have beef with an elf? He's never even, he's met these guys. Well, right. So first of all, Pippin doesn't seem like a hateful person. Yeah. And second, Tolkien never elaborates on why they were beefing. <laughs> he just says Pippin won't go if Arrestor goes. So maybe it was because Arrestor was pregnant and Pippin was being really judgy. I don't know. Ugh, you can't handle other people's lifestyles. You just can't. I know. Arrestor has a very alternative lifestyle, which is all um, Christmas trees, schmaltz and male pregnancy we and don't do mpreg in the shire <laughs> that's exactly this is disgusting exactly i'm going home <laughs> another thing that tolkien really managed to develop at this stage are the kingdoms of men specifically the kingdoms that the numenorians made after their island sank in fact he develops it so well that he actually puts like too much information in and then he later takes some of it out and uses it elsewhere initially he seems to conceive of only one kingdom that being gondor rather than two kingdoms anor and gondor so he also has Aragorn kvetch at Boromir because apparently the men of Gondor rejected Aragorn's ancestors. So he says, quote, The men of Minas Tirith drove out my fathers. Is not that remembered, Boromir? The men of that town have never ceased to wage war on Sauron, but they have listened not seldom to counsels that came from him. In the days of Valandur, they murmured against the men of the West and rose against them. And when they came back from battle with Sauron, they refused them entry into the city. What do the men of Minas Tirith want with me? To return to aid them in the war and then reject me at the gates again? Oh, he sounds a bit bitter. He does. So evidently at this stage, the men of the West were different from the men of Gondor, I guess. Like, it's really weird and I'm not sure how Tolkien was thinking of it in his head because it doesn't really make sense. Like, same. They're like all descended from Numenor, but whatever. Um, Fortunately, he soon came up with the idea of two kingdoms, one established by Elendil in the north and the other further down the Anduin in the south. He also came up with the fact that a lot of Beleriand fell into the sea at the end of the First Age. That was was new. Thereby changing the shape of Middle-earth. He also came up with more details about the elf lord Gilgalad, his friendship with Elendil, the last alliance of men and elves. Plus, he ironed out a lot of the geography and place names. So, like, Minas Anor, Osgiliath, Minas Ithil, Minas Morgul. He also mentions Rohan, though he seems to hint that Rohan is an evil place, or at least a place that pays tribute to Sauron. Oh, interesting. They give Sauron horses, apparently. As Tolkien went on, he also felt the need to flesh out Gimli and Gloin, story, specifically the story of Moria and what went down there. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, he starts out saying that they were driven out by orcs, and it's only later that he hits upon the idea of Durin's Bane, aka the Balrog. Ah, (laughs) Though, as you will see in a minute, his initial idea of what a Balrog is was like, really different from how most people would probably think of a Balrog. This where it's like a man-sized guy. So, <laughs> just, you have to wait. You have to wait. I okay? hate the man-sized you Balrog. You have to wait, right? I know I'm not into that. I know. Just wait. Okay. A couple other incidental things at the Council of Elrond. So, one is Gandalf talking about Tom Bombadil and giving all Tom Bombadil's alternative names. So, this actually did make it into the finished book, but with some differences. Initially, Tolkien writes that Tom Bombadil is called Yare by the elves. Arian by the gnomes, aka of Noldor elves, mm-hmm. Forn by the dwarves, and either Oreald, Orold, or Frumbarn by men. Uh, for the mannish name, he eventually settled on Orald, which is similar to the old English word for very old. And actually, all of these alternate names mean eldest or ancient or something similar, which just makes it even funnier that hobbits just call him Tom. <laughs> They call him Tom. Like, they're all like, ancient one, he who was here before the world was formed or whatever. (laughs) And the hobbit's just like, Tom. It's like if God's name was Gary or something. Like, it's just... Speaking of Tom Bombadil, in explaining why he has not asked for Tom Bombadil's help, Gandalf says, quote, We have never had much to do with one another up till now. I don't think he quite approves of me somehow. He belongs to a much older generation, and my ways are not his. So I just love the idea of Tom Bombadil looking at Gandalf and being like, Goddamn millennial! Like, if you want to kill Sauron, you gotta stop spending all your money on avocado toast. <laughs> just his fatherly disapproval. Aww. I know it's so sad. Old Tom. Another thing. This is kind of funny. Tolkien becomes a victim of his own complex universe at this point because he completely f's up his own invented genealogy. Oh no! So in the Hobbit, how could he ever do that? It's not like it's, <laughs> it's, not like it's hard to follow or totally anything. Totally forgot. So in the Hobbit, Thorin Oakenshield is the son of Thrain, who was the son of Thror. Thror gets killed at Moria while Thrain gets captured and tortured by the necromancer. But Tolkien subsequently keeps mixing up Thror and Thrain. So because he can't keep them straight, when he makes a map for the Hobbit, he says that the map was drawn by Thror, but the map says here of old was Thrain king under the mountain. But that doesn't make any sense because Thrain is Thror's son. 
Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So to address this issue, Tolkien edited The Hobbit to explain that actually there were two Thrains and Thorne was talking about the first one, so everyone just shut up. Maybe you shouldn't have given them names that had the first three letters constantly and like sound. I think that seemed more mythic to him. Yeah, it's super mythical, but <laughs> he confused he done goofed. <laughs> he done goofed. He confused himself. Finally, 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 the Council of Elrond is over. And it's time for the Fellowship to go south. We've now got the classic lineup. Frodo, Sam, Mary, Pippin, Gandalf, Aragorn, Boromir, Legolas, and Gimli. The dream team. The dream team. And this is the point of the story where they have to decide what route to take. And what we'd expect, based on the finished book, is that Gandalf wants to take the mountain pass. Gimli wants to go through the mines of Moria. And Boromir wants to go to Gondor. Because, like, Gondor is the only place Boromir ever wants to go. And Legolas wants to avoid any toll roads because he's a cheap ass. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The Ohio Turnpike, he hates the Ohio Turnpike. No, thank Turnpike. you. We'll take the back no, roads, guys. No, thank you. But actually, in these drafts, it's Aragorn who says, quote, Indeed, it is my counsel that you should go first to that city, i.e. Minas Tirith. Okay. Which is a dumb idea. It sounds like dumb a bad, idea, yeah. Aragorn. It's not strategically sound, Aragorn. Um, we also have drafts where Aragorn wants to go through the mines of Moria. Again, dumb idea, Aragorn. And here's where Tolkien finally advances beyond the point where he stopped in 1939. The differences from the published version of the book are fairly slight at this stage. Um, there is one incident when they first come to the door of the mines where Legolas gets spooked and starts running around brandishing a knife. <laughs> I can't imagine that. So though. Legolas-like, that's, right? That's great. This was rejected, but then in a subsequent draft, there's a part where the Watcher in the Water almost gets Legolas with its tentacles, but Gimli manages to grasp Legolas by the hand and drag him inside the mines. Oh. Which, like, Gimli wouldn't even do that at this point. Like, he'd probably just let Legolas die. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> because racism. Um, anyway, Tolkien abandoned the idea of Legolas's brush with death. The encounter with the orcs in the cave troll plays out pretty much as it does in the finished novel. When the Balrog shows up, though, it's not how you'd probably think of a Balrog. So let me read the description. Quote. I'm preparing myself. The orc ranks had opened as if they themselves were afraid. A figure strode to the fissure, no more than man high, yet terror seemed to go before it. Its streaming hair seemed to catch fire. What? So the Balrog is like a man with long flowing hair that blows in the wind. (laughs) But it might look like it's on fire? Is it like glowing hair? I have no idea. It's like fiber optic hair. He said he's the height of a man. Is he still like... He could be really wide. He's the height of the man, but a width of, like, a semi-truck. <laughs> Just, like, this big, wide, square man. Oh, God. Um, so, so, anyway, the Balrog is a man, and it also, like, sprints around. I mean, he just said this man's size, but I'm just, I'm just picturing a guy. Like I'm, yeah, I'm just picturing a man. I know. I'm just picturing a dude. And Gandalf also 1v1s it on the Bridge of Casa Doom, but it's much more of a knockdown brawl than it is in the published version. Got some wizard punches? So, uh, the Balrog sprints up to him and whacks him, and then Gandalf sends up a big burst of fire, and the Balrog is like, Brah! and its sword breaks. And then it tries to grab Gandalf, but Gandalf cuts off the Balrog's right hand. The Balrog then uses its whip to wrap up Gandalf's legs, but that is not why Gandalf falls off the bridge. Oh. Why he falls off the bridge is that a big fat troll comes hauling ass up onto the bridge and jumps on it and breaks it. Now that's a little less dramatic and cool, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very comedic. I love the, I love the image of it. <laughs> this big troll's being, doop, 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 oopsie, and they all just fall into the chasm. Dad, what's the uh, maximum weight on this thing? Because <laughs> I exceeded it. Whoopsie. So to his credit, Tolkien almost immediately wrote, no, Gandalf breaks the bridge and Balrog falls, but lassos him, which I think we can agree is objectively better. It's a lot cooler. So Not that's funny, but a lot cooler. Yes. So that's where we're going to end this week. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So we got no more fat troll. No more fat troll breaking the bridge. No trotter. No trotter. No, well, at least no wooden feet right, hobbit. Right, right, right. No man Balrog sprinting around. <laughs> no Pregnant elf coming on the adventure. <laughs> Not pregnant elves on the adventure now. <laughs> no uh, golem holding off on giving the ring to orcs because it wouldn't be funny. <laughs> a lot of changes. A lot of changes. A lot of changes. Yeah. Well, that wasn't boring at all. Good. I'm glad because I really, really tried to make it the opposite of that. Well, so. good job. It was entertaining. And it wasn't like school at all. Ick. School. I hate school. I like pizza and snowboards. And dabbing. Ryan just dabbed. You couldn't see it. I did. But I'm a teen. I like Dougieing. Because I'm one of those ironic teens who's like kind of retro. You guys remember Dougieing? It was like this crazy thing from like forever ago. Teach me how to Dougie. Teach me, teach me how to Dougie. I will not. Superman that hoe. 
Um, <laughs> I will not teach you how to Superman that hoe. Good stuff. Yeah, what you got? Like you told me already, I did kind of run out of Star Wars pre-knowledge to talk about. So I'm just going into a thing from the prequels today. Prequels! Talking about pod racing. Now this is? Pod racing. Now, I think it's because we... You used so many, uh, we used so many F Zero cues in the last couple episodes that I felt <laughs> like about racing. Yeah, I was thinking, about, oh, fast racing. Wait, have we actually used more than one F Zero cue? Dash the Man Rendar's theme song was, was also F Zero. Was, was Captain Falcon's theme in <laughs> Smash Brothers? You, we used Mute City talking about the hobbits fighting on the volcano. Do you feel like I always use Mute City for anything remotely intense? So, all right, pod racing. How do you comma, feel, this is? How do you feel about the pod racing sequence in Episode One, The Phantom Menace? It's super goofy, but it's also probably, like, one of the most exciting parts. Also, it was, like, fun to play in the video game. Oh, uh, yeah. I was... I, I, I've been playing the game of it. Episode 1 Racer have. on the N64. I've watched you play it. I've oh. been playing it recently. The game is so good. But, yeah, it's... When you watch Episode 1 again, it is really long. It's super memorable, right? People think Episode 1... They think... The first thing about, like, Jar Jar, of course. But they think about the pod race, think about the Darth Maul fight. Those are, like, the right. two big t- parts they remember. I like the pod race a lot. When I was a kid, I thought it was awesome. It could be a little shorter. But I think it's a fun... It's a cool idea for a sport. This also, super, yeah. Super dangerous... You have, like, a hover car strapped to two actual rockets, like... And it also gives them the opportunity to show a lot of, like, crazy kooky aliens. Kooky aliens and their kooky homemade spaceships. Which look very bad because it's 1999 CG, but... Some are puppets, actually. Puppets are good. Go with the puppets. And most of the pod racers that you see up close are actually built in Tunisia. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Cool. For later. Anyway. That's awesome. A pod racer consists of a small repulsion lift cockpit attached to a series of massive turbine ion or rocket motors linked together by plasma energy binders. You remember in episode one when Anakin's like trying to get his pod racer working and he's like, he's like, it's working! Yeah. And, and like electricity goes between the yes. two. It keeps them together. It keeps them from splitting off. Okay. And causing problems. And now plasma is like what all the engines of like spacecraft yeah. are operating yeah. on, right? So it's essentially like, essentially like you're driving a spacecraft around, but like a foot off the ground. Exactly. Exactly. So pods were all built by their owners. They were cobbled together from spare parts, military surplus engines. You could buy a schematic for a pod, but you couldn't just go to a pod racer dealership and buy one. It was all very custom made for the person who's going to be driving it. It always just looked kind of slapped together. Yeah, that's that's part of the fun of it. Yeah. They could reach speeds in excess of 800 kilometers an hour or 500 miles per hour. I do not think humans are made with reflexes adequate to drive something like that through a canyon. That's exactly why there's no humans who have raced a pod racer except for Anakin. Oh, so the kid's got great response times. He's, he's got the force, so it helps him fight the pod racer. So most racers of pods had to have either multiple sets of limbs, super fast reaction times, like eyes on the back of their heads or something. They had to have some kind of way to manage going that fast and not crash into things. But people crash into things a lot because... Uh, every race, a number of people would die. Yeah, that's what it looked like in the movie. It looked they, like people were dying and exploding all over episode the Episode 1, there's actually two or three that actually died. But a Is lot that of, actually pretty good? It's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Out of 18 racers, only three dying. That's pretty good, right? But of course, you know, when you go to see NASCAR, go to like, you know, uh, a hockey game or something, like, you want to see the fights. You want to see them crash. You want to see the bloodshed. I mean, yeah, it's a blood sport. People... It's like the Latter-day Coliseum. That's why it was so popular across the galaxies, because of the crazy things that could happen. Let's talk about the history before I jump into the pod racers. Yeah, please. Okay? So, while the first race and racers are lost to history, pod racing traces roots back to the days of animal-drawing carts on many different worlds. Like, your classic chariot race. Oh, wow, it's like Ben-Hur or something. Yeah, yep. Okay. I mean... That's where George, if Ben Hur was going like 500 miles, George Lucas an hour. has said that's where he got the idea for the pod races from Ben Hur. Who would have guessed? It's, it's not like his influences are ever transparent. <laughs> so on Tatooine, these cart races evolved into incorporate Hano speeders, which are kind of like uh, early land speeders, in events held by Bunta the Hut. Bunta. Bunta. So Bunta was a famous hut. He was most known for his victory over the Parliament of Moralan, where he led a three-day assault on the Moralan homeworld until all the Moralans became extinct. Cool! And so the Huts thought this guy was awesome, and so they created a three-day holiday in his honor called Bunta Eve. And so on Tatooine, even up until the time Anakin was around, they held a race every year called the Bunta Eve Classic. And that's the one you see in episode one. Jabba held it in his honor. Bunta was a long time ago. I was going to say, like, is he dead? Bunta was back when they were just speeder races. They weren't pod racers yet. Okay, got it. The concept of the modern-day pod race became thing in about 100 BBY, 100 years before the Battle of Yavin, on the planet Malastare by a Doug racer named Gustav Wimbus. Okay, hold on. <laughs> First off, Gustav Wimbus. Awesome. Second yeah. of all, what is the a what racer? He's a Doug. 
What's a duh? Oh, Doug! Doug, 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 like the race! Doug is like what Sebulba is? Yeah, 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 yeah. His people were the first ones to invent pod racing. Right. Okay. So he actually entered himself into a speeder race with his new prototype pod, and it kicked everyone's butts. Couldn't People couldn't believe how fast this thing was. It was like bringing a rocket to a bicycle race. After Wembus's victory, <laughs> Wembus Bembus. he set about to standardize the pod racer's configuration and promoted the first circuits. His rules were simple. Build a racer, make it fast, and race. That's it. Okay. Soon races popped up all over the galaxy, including the Vintage Harvest Classic on Malastare, the Ando Overland on Ando Prime, and the Aline Classic on Aline. Pod racing was tightly controlled by the Hut syndicates. The pilots were often venerated athletes and were known for their swaggering, jockeying demeanor because once you survive a pod race, you're, like, untouchable. Yeah, right. Like, you are it. The sports popularity reached an all-time high following the human child Anakin Skywalker's victory, but as the political situation of the Republic deteriorated, so did the appeal of pod racing. So as the Empire rose to power, pod racing was entirely outlawed across the galaxy. The sponsorships, acclaim, cash flow, and venues, all the things that the racers had before were all of a sudden gone. But did it move underground? Because you actually think, like, in times of of turmoil like that, people need, like, that cheap, thrilling entertainment. It did continue in a reduced capacity. Mostly, this was the Empire's attempt to crack down on aliens. Okay. They didn't like this sport that had entirely alien racers, had entirely, you know, alien fans. Racist, but okay. They are racist. We talked about this before, the Tarkin Doctrine, where human rights come first before any other species. Right. Right. And so they uh, would disappear racers. Oof. They'd arrest them on trumped-up crimes. Okay, so there's like some Pinochet action going on. Totally. Imperial agents would seize and auction off pod racers, the arenas, and all the equipment they could locate. Yikes. And so they did have to go underground. It was a much reduced capacity, and eventually they switched over to swoops because they're easier to hide than a pod. Oh, sure. Because pod racers are huge. Swoops probably also didn't go like 500 miles per hour. No, no, no. But they were just like very fast bikes, like, you know, right. hover, hover motor bikes. Not actually connected to like engines Rockets. made for yeah. outer space. Right, right. Like, a, uh, let's kind of talk about some of those pod racers that were in the Boone to Eve classic who maybe had to go underground. Uh, let's start with a guy called Ben Quadraneros. Okay. This is one you see in the movie. He's the goober who gets stuck at the starting line. <gasps> that goober! When his pods won't start. You dumb dumb. Yep. As a person, Ben was of the Toon species who were noted across the galaxy for their cowardice and doormat tendencies. Okay! <laughs> so the night before the Boone to Eve classic, Bulls Roar, who was a fellow racer and also a, a rock star, he was like a glimmick singer. Yeah. This is genre of music. Bet him five million pegas, which are this kind of gold standard hut currency. Yeah. Good in hut space. To enter the race. Even though he's cowardly. Even though he's a total Even though coward. literally his whole race is cowardly, because that's how things work in Star Wars. And he's sweating bullets, and he's wiping the sweat off his brow. He's like, okay, oh I'll boy, oh, jeez, oh, oh, the sweat, but five million pegots, I can do so much with that. And so he accepted, and he rented a speeder, a BT-3110, one of the fastest, most reliable pods due to its four engines instead of two engines. Oh. So Ben Quadrenaris, you remember him at the beginning of the movie? Yeah. At the beginning of the race, he's got those four engines, he's trying to get them to go. They ain't going. However, before the race, another racer named Bumpy Roos. They have great names, by the way. Wimbus Bumpy Roos. So Bumpy Roos was trying to sabotage Anakin's pod racer because Zabulba thought he'd be a threat. But he accidentally sabotaged Ben's instead. Oh, no. He destroyed his power couplings. And so when Ben finally got it working, that's why the four engines flew off in all different directions. Oh no, my couplings! And made him the laughing stock of the Boon to Eve class. Oh, everyone's laughing at me! But, despite having his dignity destroyed, he did get the five million pegats because he entered the race. That's all he needed to do? Yeah. Cool. Wait, is that his picture? It's Ben, yeah. Ben Quadranero. <laughs> he looks like Droopy Dog. Oh, jeez. Oh, mean old pod racers. Yeah, yeah. So you know what I say whenever I make five million pegats for doing nothing? What? Now this is pod racing. Are you going to play that over and over again, Ryan? Yep. Are you going to? I was worried you would do something like this. I feel like I had a nightmare where you did something like this, and now it's coming true. Welcome to your nightmare. <laughs> oh. Next we'll talk about Gasgano. Gasgano? Okay. Gasgano is a Zexto, which is a four-armor species with 24 fingers to make them very good at operating a so pod racer. So eight fingers on each hand? hand? Yes. He could do multiple tasks while racing. He could, like, check the engines while accelerating and, you know, do all that kinds of fun seems stuff. Seems like too many fingers, but... He could do it. Yeah. He's one of the most famous pod racers in the galaxy, uh, next to Sebulba, of course. He considered himself an intellectual. Mm-hmm. He read a lot of books. Science-minded guy. Designed his own pod racer and everything. Yeah. It out. His strategy was to focus on the finish line at all costs, unless angered. In which case, he became one of the most deadly racers on the track. In which case, it became murder at So all he costs. was your angle or your devil. <laughs> your angle or your devil. Yeah, this is him. This is, this is Gasgano. He's the nicest person you'll ever meet or a twisted effing psychopath. <laughs> 
Wait, is he a human? No, he's, he's an he alien. He looks like a human in that. He's a Zexto. This oh, is, he's this, a Zexto. This is a meme I found. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was a Facebook thing. Some, some Twisted effing psychopath. During the Boon to Eve classic, Gascana was championed by Gardula the Hutt, which is one of Jabba's rivals. And many were betting that he would overcome Sebulba. He's like a pretty famous racer. Uh-huh. Their bets were right. Sebulba's pod was destroyed, leaving <gasps> him disqualified. Ha! And Gascana actually got second place behind Anakin. All right. So he did good. Do you get anything for second place? Money, baby. All right. The silver medal. So he rose in pod racing fame after that. Later on, there was a book that came out that was a guide to Mos Eisley Cantina, like a visual dictionary kind of thing. And it listed a four-armed former Bunta Eve pod racer who became a pickpocket as one of his denizens. Oh. So it's possible. Didn't name Gascano by name. But it's possible Gascano fell on hard times. Yeah, things kind of went downhill for Gascano. Here's Gascano. Done fell off. As he sped past a cursing Sebulba to the finish line, he was quoted as saying, Now this is pod racing. <laughs> oh, everybody's just saying that. <laughs> everybody's Everybody. saying that. That's like a big catchphrase. So that's Gascano. Next, let's talk about Tinto Pagalese. He's the one in the movie who, whose pod gets shot by a Tuscan Raider. Yeah. The, pod, the Tuscan Raiders are sniping the racers. Which, which why by. are they doing that? Because it's fun. God, I mean, they're such a-holes. They're trying to salvage the parts, too, so they can, like, oh, sell I them guess. to Jawas and stuff. Oh, I guess. And I remember this part because his pod makes a hilarious noise as he spins out. <laughs> <laughs> Bunny noise in it. Because <laughs> his pod is, is his cockpit has an open air. It's like a yeah. like a donut shape, and he sits in the middle of the donut. They might as well just have it go like womp 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 womp. <laughs> so he was a Vecnoid, and apparently a handsome Vecnoid at that. Oh, he was he? exiled from his planet for being too handsome. Well, he was too handsome because the princess of the planet was attracted to him. Oh, and tried to get him to marry her. And he kept rejecting her advances, like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, like, you know, I can't, I'm not a prince or anything. And so her father banished him from the planet. Because he didn't want to get married to her? Yep. Uh, that's, oh my god. So poor Tinto. That's really sad. So he became a pod racer instead, and he was actually really good at it. When he came to Tatooine for the Boon to Eve classic, he immediately fell in love with Sebulba's Twi'lek masseuse, Angela, one of those blue girls he hangs out with. Oh, that's more his type, I, I guess. guess so. But not he, so much princesses, but masseuse. But Tinto struggled yes. to get her to notice him. He was kind of just a little short guy. He's a little guy about like four feet tall. And Because obviously she's out of my league. Pretty good. Yeah. That's that's McFly. Obviously. <laughs> obviously McFly. So, the 1990s hit. Before the Boon to Eve classic, he drowned his sorrows on jury juice at the local bar getting really drunk. Oh no, dude. Now what do you want to do before you're going to drive 500 miles an hour? Now, uh, he owed Jabba some money. And so Jabba actually hired a hitman to knock him out while he was drunk. Oh crap. But thankfully, there was a guy at the bar, a little uh, Jedi fellow named Qui-Gon Jinn, uh, uh, who gave the hitman false directions, saving Team Toe Pagali's life. Is that the movie? No, it's in one of the comic books. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't remember no that. Way. As mentioned, during the pod race, Team Toe's pod was shot by Tusken Raiders. Uh, the one who shot him was named Or-Ag-Roar. Or-Ag-Roar? <laughs> yep. After that hilarious spinning noise, he survived with injuries. <laughs> Most notably, his ears melted off. <laughs> what? Why? Why just his ears? I don't know. Why did just his ears? I feel like they wouldn't get like hot if it's an open air pod. They just get like too cold. His family put a bounty on Orag Roar for 3,000 credits, which uh, Jingle Fett later claimed. Oh, easy pickings. Killed that Tuscan Raider. Oh, yeah. Brought him a scout. It's not hard. Yep. He became known as a crowd pleaser for his daring stunts on the track, though often getting injured in the process. For example, he lost one of his eyes at one point during did, one did it get Did it get burned off? Probably. By sand? Okay. Yeah. After he won the Alien Classic, he planned to use the prize money to buy Angela, the Zabalba's masseuse, buy her freedom from Zabalba. Yeah. But instead, he used it to free uh, his mechanic's brother, also belonged to Sebulba, and he decided to free him instead so the brothers could be reunited. Bros before hoes, man. Yeah. In ABY, after losing an arm. Why does he keep losing? Does he lose a body part every time he races? After he lost the arm, he retired from pod racing. Yeah, it's about time, dude. So ABY, this is like eight years after the Battle of Yavin. Team Toe actually ended up owning the Most Espa Grand Arena, which is where the Eve Classic took place. It was now a swoop racing track. Cool, but he no longer enjoy it because he no longer had, like, any body parts left. No, he was just, yeah, he's, he's more machine than man. At some point, Leia actually visited Tatooine, and she visited the arena to talk to Tinto about her father's victory at the Boonta Eve Classic. And he later sent her a copy of a video of the race. She came like, my dad actually win that race? Is it really as cool as he said it was? And he's like, oh yeah, it was super cool. Here's a video. And but so, then she, but then he had to show her him going, whoa, 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 whoa. 
He probably edited that part out, right? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe he put like the blooper reel at the end. It's just like that, like a 10 minute loop of him just spinning out. I did so, that on purpose because it would be funny. So there's Team Topagalese. He's a very handsome cool. man for a Vecnoid. Holy cow. There's his pod. And he's in the, one of the uh, Star Wars kids educational games Dude, too. he looks like a, like a, I don't know, like a... He's a little Muppet. He's cute. <laughs> Uh, he looks like a Crash Bandicoot character. I think he's kind of cute in that one, right? I mean, kind of, but... I like he's got a big dope. He got the underbite going on. <laughs> he looks like he should be in, what's it called? Like Banjo-Kazooie. Oh, yeah. He's a Banjo-Kazooie He looks like Banjo-Kazooie. If I'd already lost my eye and both my ears and then crashed again during a wild stunt with the flaming debris separating my arm from my body as I flew away from the explosion, you know what I'd scream? Now this is Podracer. Are you sure you wouldn't scream, Ah! Ah! No, I, uh, I definitely scream. Now this is pod racing. <laughs> That's right. But you wouldn't even be able to hear yourself screaming because you just melted both your ears off. <laughs> yep, pretty much. <laughs> anyway, the next race we want to talk about is called Rats Tyrell. He's, he's Rats like, Tyrell. That rules. Oh, this name's great. That rules. We got Rats Caligis. Ty- yes. We got Ben Quadraneros, which again I forgot to mention. Quadraneros. His pot has four engines. Uh-huh, 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 really uh-huh, clever uh-huh. names. Uh-huh. But no, Rats Tyrell, holy hell. Rats Tyrell is the one who crashes into a stalactite. So he dies? He dies. But he has like the best name. I found a 10 minute loop of Rats Tyrell crashing into a stalactite <laughs> that someone made on YouTube. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> It makes a great little noise, though. (laughs) 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 That's Rats Tyrell. Oh, man. Good night, sweet prince. He's an Alina pilot, only about 80 centimeters tall, so a little over two feet tall. His planet was a harsh environment full of vicious creatures, which forced young rats to have to use his quick reflexes to save his life in the wilds. Yeah. You know, get away from vicious predators. Which later helped him become one of the top pod racers on this planet, and eventually the most famous Alina in the entire galaxy. He piloted a pod called the Scat Talpen, which was named for a predator on Aline, known for slashing the stomachs of its victims and causing them to trip on their entrails. Ew, that's not a violent... Yeah. I like how it's not only it slashes open their stomachs, but it watches them trip over them. That's like part of its killing method. Yeah. <laughs> Despite his pod's grisly namesake, Rats was known to be a gentleman on the track. Oh, a gentleman and a scholar. Oh, off the track, people thought he was kind of a boast, like a kind of a kind of a uh, big mouth. Yeah. Kind of into himself. Well, a he did bit. literally have a big mouth. He is the most famous guy on Aline. During his racing tour around the galaxy, he met a mate and had several children with her. Oh, nice. He also created a board game called Rats Race. <laughs> which he would play against spacers and cantinas and make he money. He made a board game? Yeah, it's like a- Did he kickstart it? He just had it. I don't did know. It, did, it, did it incorporate the Lovecraft mythos in was, some capacity? He said it was popular across the galaxy. People would bet money on it on, in, you know, in, in space bars. And Was it a jump to conclusions? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I want to find a version of Rats Race and play it. As a gamer, he also hated cheaters and vowed to kill the biggest cheater of them all, Sebulba. Right? Mm-hmm. But Rats was a gentleman about it. He didn't conspire with any other racers. He didn't sabotage Sebulba's pod. All he did was put secret weapons inside of his engines. That's all? No, that's all. Not. Just some secret He's weapons. He's a gentleman about Wait, it. Wait, Rats put secret weapons in Rats' engines? Yes. In his to own... kill Sebulba. Yeah. In, in a gentlemanly fashion. In a gentlemanly fashion. Got it. The Bunta Eve classic arrived. Rat's wife had recently given birth to their third child, and she attended the race anyway with her kids in tow. We actually see them in the movie. Oh, he's a family Rats man. Is, Rats is That's family. nice. Yep. After the first lap, while trying to gain on Sebulba and use his secret weapons, Rats crashed into a stalactite in the Laguna Cave. <laughs> Rats Tyrell's death ultimately had a big effect on the sport of pod racing. The entire planet of Aline mourned the death of the most famous member of their species. Moved by his father's tragic end, Rat's son, Deland Tyrell, eventually established the Rat's Tyrell Foundation, which was an organization devoted to making pod racing a safer sport in order to preserve the lives of the pilots who had wives and children back home. Oh my god, what's that? Nobody's gonna come watch that. Well, it's like if you try to make football safe and like not give everybody traumatic brain injuries. Like, nobody wants to watch that. I mean, they're kind of kind of party poopers. They campaigned across the galaxy for the sport to be entirely outlawed and were successful in many worlds, and even more so when the Empire took over. Several pod racers spoke out about it, like famous ones like Gascano was not into it, he spoke out about it. But didn't do anything. Man. So here's Rats Tyrell. We saw him scream, and here's his here's his wife and some of his kids. Oh my god, his wife is literally him with lipstick and a little hat. It's so cute. Baby. Aww. She's blowing up pod. Actually, hang on. I have that book about the Star Wars languages that Ben Burt wrote. Yeah. Uh, and the cover has a fun art 
of an Elim family, which are Rats Tyrell's people. Uh, I think that's oh, Rats Tyrell's family on vacation. They're on vacation. They're all wearing sunglasses and like dorky little fishermen's hats. And that's, that's, not a, that's not a canon picture, but I think it's very fun. That's very. I should mention too, guys. All this stuff is from legends. Like the canon side of things, it's like he was at the pod race. He crashed into a stalactite. <laughs> he was. This guy was there. Yep, pretty much. Do you know what a young Dylan Tyrell said when he saw his dad crash at 500 miles per hour? Rats off to you. He didn't say anything. His dad died, Julian. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Have, some, have a heart. I'm sorry, a man just died. He was a boy who watched his father crash into a stalactite. Come on. Boo-hoo-hoo. Who needs a moment of silence? Okay. Now this is <laughs> Anakin! Off yours, Anakin! Let's talk about the man himself. The one we kind of mentioned a few times. Sebulba. Sebulba. Everyone wants a piece of him. What's his deal, right? He's Dick. So he's a Doug. Who are those rowdy... He's Dick Doug. You know what? He's he... a dick deck Doug. <laughs> having fun over there? Same sound effects? I'm having a ton of fun. Same syllables? Okay. Rest Tyrell, are you here? Why? I'm a Halloween. Sounds like Wario, yeah. So he's a Doug, who are these rowdy boys from Alistair who walk on their hands, but can use all four limbs equally well, because actually they evolved to be arboreal. Okay. Swinging through trees. Uh, his legs look pretty useless, I have to say. Well, his legs actually can, can hang on to stuff as well. So in his pod, he actually uses, I guess, his arms to do things in the pod as well as his feet. Okay. So his hands would take care of, like, mechanical stuff and his feet would steer. That's how he did things. Like most thugs, Sebulba was going to be belligerent and aggressive and constantly needing to prove a superiority over others. Literally, it's an entire race of, like, like insecure a-holes. Pretty much. Okay. As are dogs. Svalba spent his earnings on a decadent lifestyle enjoyed by very few dugs. Most dugs were kind of poor and worked in factories and stuff, but he was like a he's like a role model for a lot of dugs. His most prized possessions include a pair of Twi'lek sisters named Anne and Tan Gela, who were skilled masseuses. Yes. We talked about how Team Telpaligis was in love with one of them. Yeah, Tangela. Yeah. He loved Tangela. <laughs> Great his Pokemon. Fav- his favorite Pokemon. Svalba often used his fame for cheap dalliances with dug females, too. Mm. Svalba also had his hands in several slaving rings for Gardula the Elder. Oh, no. Wait, who's Gardula the Elder? Gardula is the one who bet on Gascano in the That's race. That's right. One of Java's rivals. When decked out for a race, Sebulba always looked his finest. On his heavily padded racing suit hung numerous trophy coins, a testament to all of his successes. <coughs> In order to ensure victory, the wily Doug would stop at nothing. He was a ruthless racer. While bribing and flat-out cheating were certainly useful, Sebulba largely preferred either pressing his opponent off, off the track and into obstacles, or using the built-in weapons on his pod racer, the most famous being his custom-built flamethrower. Yes. Yes. Which was all legal? Well, no rules in pod racing. Remember, Wembus's rules. Build a pod, race... Do it. Like, so it doesn't matter. Doesn't you could matter. literally murder people. Pretty much. I mean, presumably there were like some federal laws against them. Just, you well, know. This is why the- just uh, inferring here, but. Oh, you agree with the Empire now? It should be illegal? Is that what you're saying? Are you, do you agree with the Rats Tyrell Foundation? You know, that I don't be- think you have to be like fashy to believe that murder should be illegal. I don't think that's actually a fascist standpoint to take. Hey, it's a risk everyone takes getting in that pod, baby. You could die at any time in that pod racer. It's about just speeding it up, okay? Okay. There's no waiver to sign. You're going to get in this race, you might die. That Everyone knows like a, that. That sounds like a very good and sound opinion. Yeah, it And is. you sound like a well-balanced individual. I'm a Sebulba stan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sebulba was the favorite to win the Boonta Eve Classic, some even believing that Jabba had rigged the race for him to win. And he did pretty well! You know, he destroyed a bunch of other pods and was neck and neck with that human kid for most of the race. But then, he, his pod racer got destroyed when he linked up with Anakin's... And his engines exploded, and he had to slam his fists on the on the dashboard and say, Puldu! After that temporary blow to his reputation and ego, Sebulba recovered quickly. He actually bought Anakin's <clears throat> pod racer from Qui-Gon after the race. He did? Yeah, because his pod was destroyed. And he's like, I want to buy the winningest car we can get. Anakin didn't need it anymore? Well, he's going to be a Jedi. That's true. Right? And so he took it back to Malastir and piloted it in the next season of the racing circuit. He continued to win many more races, maintaining his brutal competitive edge. After retiring from the fast-paced world of pod racing, his son Hecula took up the sport. Hecula, bleh! Bam, bam, dog, eh? So his dad's like, here, son, you're going to take Anakin's old racer. Don't mess it up. I he, bet he messed it up. He crashed it in the first race. Yeah, I knew it! And Sebulba forbade him from racing ever again. What the heckula? Yeah, for real. Come on, heckula. Eight years after the Boon to Eve Classic, Sebulba challenged Anakin. He got a hold of him to a one-on-one race on Malastare. And he actually rebuilt his old pod from the Boon to Eve Classic. And he rebuilt Anakin's destroyed pod that Hecula crashed. And the result of the race is unknown. But that had to be a pretty cool rematch. 
Wait, what's the point of telling us that there was one if they don't tell us what the- This was in a video game called Star Wars Racer Revenge oh, for the PS2. It was a sequel to Episode 1 Racer on the N64. Oh, so of course it's just as canon as anything else. Now, how can we be sure that Sebulba didn't rebuild Anakin's pod to, like, be really bad? Like, why would you trust him? That's be like, oh, you rebuild- it's, no, it is not a risk he has to take. That is a risk that nobody needs to take. It is an absolutely unnecessary, not take needable thing. Okay. I'm just saying. I guess I don't have the spirit of a pod raiser. You don't, Joanna. You got no no gumption, no no chutzpah, no, no vigor, no moxie. No, I have absolutely none. Sebulba's final fate is also unknown. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know how he died. But we know his grandson, whose name was Pugwis, continued the pod racing tradition. Pugwis. Pugwis. P-U-G-W-I-S. He was thought to be an even better racer than his grandfather, but not quite as smart. And eventually he took part in Jabba's demolition events at his palace. Was that like a demolition derby where cars just like run into each other and stuff? This is also from a video game called Star Wars Demolition uh, for the Dreamcast, where it was kind of like Twisted Metal or Vigilante 8, but with Star Wars vehicles. Oh my god, I, lo- I used to love Twisted Metal. It's a really cool game, because you can play as Pugwis, who drives a pod racer around yeah. in, in the demolition derby, so it's like incredibly fast and hard to drive. <laughs> so it's actually like not even you that You can also play good. as uh, Malakili in the <laughs> Rancor as a character. Whoa! You can play as, as, a, as a disgraced Imperial uh, officer who drives an ATST around dude you can play as darth maul you can unlock him dude. On, his, on his little bike but can you listen to that one rob zombie song that they use in twisted metal no you can hear the wonderful tracks like, of john williams yeah i know what you're talking about that's the only song that was in twisted metal as far as i can remember john williams did a version of that for star wars demolition of the Rob Zombie song. One last bonus character to talk about. Fodsenbead Anodu, who is the announcer for the Boon to Eve podcast. Fodsenbead Anodu. He's the two-headed announcer. Where one head speaks basic, one head speaks Hatis. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> I he... wish I could do that. As a translator, I yeah. wish I could do that. So he's a Troig, and their entire species has two heads. And every, every one of them has two independent <clears throat> noggins who have their own personalities and brains. But what they do is they each have their own name. And they would combine their name with the with an infix, yeah. Sin. And so the one in the pod race, the redhead is named Fode, and the greenhead yeah. is named Bead. So, so Fode, Sin. Fode, Sin, Bead. Fode, Sin, Bead. Yep. Do you know that Fode was voiced by Greg Proops? Greg Proops? Did you ever watch Whose Line Is It Anyway? That Greg? Yeah. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. First of all, I didn't know his last name was Proops. It's Proops. Okay. Second of all, I didn't know he did voice acting work. Yeah. His, he actually talked about his experience on another podcast called I Was There Too. Yeah. He talked about his experience beyond the set of episode one and how they actually had him originally as a makeup character. He had like, some makeup chair for like a few hours and went nowhere. But And it was basically just him and his buddy riffing with each other. Then his buddy got completely dubbed over with Hatice. It's a really interesting episode to listen to. It's really, really? cool. So listen, to I was there too. Look up Greg Proops. Okay. It's pretty entertaining. So every week you teach me something interesting about Lord of the Rings. I teach you something stupid about Star Wars. No, it's interesting though. But you know what I think to myself after every episode? Yes. Now this is podcasting. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. Imagine, imagine like the Citizen Kane clap. Imagine that. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yep. Well, I guess that about wraps it up. What about our segment, week? you fool? You mean the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst name challenge. All right. So, Joanna, to our expectations, Master Soon Bates. Master Bates <laughs> won the worst name challenge last week. I would have been floored if he hadn't. Nob, however, did make it three weeks. We were going to raise him up into the rafters. Awesome. Let's raise him up. Bye, Nob. Bye, Nob. Raise your knob. I'm so glad that we had two dick jokes in one challenge. What? What's a dick joke? I don't know. I don't, what's what a are you dick? talking about? I don't even know what a dick is. Sorry. So, who do you bring to challenge Master Bates this week? Nobody. I give up. Master Bates is going to beat anybody. This is a this is a worst name challenge first. Are you saying that none can beat Master Bates? Name one combination of words in this universe that can beat a name like Master Bates. So you heard it here, folks. Joanna is surrendering her challenger this week. So I think we're going to have to raise Master Bates into the rafters as well. All right. Bye, bye Master, Master Bates. Bates. Bye. You know what he's going to do up there, don't you? going to be a wise Jedi master. Yep, that's exactly right. Hang out with his friend Nob. Yeah. So now the arena is clear. Yes. Who do you bring to the table this week? 
I, fill the void of Knob. I like this one a lot. Um, I'm stretching the rules a little bit because this actually isn't a character, a, fo- a, fo- a false character. Oh. But I think you'll agree that it is still admissible, okay? Okay. So it's, it's, it belong to a noun of some kind, a person, place, or thing. Yes, it does. Okay, then you're fine. So you remember that joke that was going around a while ago that was like, J.R.R. Tolkien's full name is Jolkin Rolkin Rolkin Tolkien. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I found out that his nickname in school was even better. So you know his initials are J.R.R.T.? Yes. So apparently people in school called him Jert. Jert? <laughs> they called him Jert. How would you spell that? J-I-R-T. Jert. Jert. Hachi machi. That's a bad one. Hey there, my old mate Jert. 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 Like it's oh, like dude. it's like jorts combined with dirt. And no vowels. Jert. <laughs> jert. So oh, that, that's what I'm putting forward for worst name challenge. That's a good jert. one. That's a good one. Uh, I'm gonna bring forth uh, to go with this week's theme a pod racer's name. Yes. Uh, there is a pod racer. He looks kind of like a warthog, and his name is Dud Bolt. Dud like Deadbolt? No, it's Dud Bolt. Dud Bolt. <laughs> First name Dud, last name Bolt. <laughs> Dud Bolt. It looks like a Dud Bolt too. Let me show you what I'm sure. So this week. Worst name challenge, Jert <laughs> and Dud Dud Bolt. Okay. Choose your favorite now. You can choose that on Facebook or on Twitter. Just search What's Lightsabers Precious. You can email us, What's Lightsabers Precious, at gmail.com. We don't get a lot of emails. Write us a letter. Let us know what you're thinking. It's We're so one way. Well, on the other end, we got... Please be friends with We got us. the landline up to our ear. We're twirling the wire in our hands. Thinking, what are you thinking about? I want to hear what you're thinking about. You can go on Apple Podcasts. You can rate us up. If you do so, write us a review. And if you do, let me know so we can make you a hobwalk picture. No one's done it yet. I know there's a few of you out there. You got to email us as part of the rules. And yeah, we will talk to you guys next week. Until then, see ya! Now this is podcasting.